You are listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It is so much more than radio. It is your community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Happy New Year! And welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon, and thank you so much for tuning in to an hour of arts on this first day of 2021. Over the last couple of weeks, I have invited some of our local arts leaders to come on the show to share with us their thoughts on the past 12 months in the arts. What has been endlessly amazing to me all year is how, after an initial screeching of breaks, so many in our local arts community found a way to carry on, albeit often in a much revised format. Despite lockdown and nine months of dark stages, no concerts, zero festivals, reductions and limitations, somehow there was enough going on to create a Speaking of the Arts Hour every week. In December alone, 18 different arts organisations and artists came on the show to talk about the work they are doing. And as a community, we love back our arts organisations. A quick tot-up of all of the Como Gives donations to arts organisations stands at over $180,000 right now. And that is only what is given through Como Gives. Many people give directly to the arts organisations and not every arts organisation takes part. So I think it is safe to say that as a community, our end of year giving to the arts probably rounds out at about $200,000. Of course, the light at the end of the arts tunnel is still many, many months away. And if we want to emerge from this time with our beloved arts organisations intact, they need us to carry on supporting them. One of the things this past year has allowed me to do is get over my anxiety about chatting to people who are not sitting in front of me in the studio. Since mid-March, I have made all the Speaking of the Arts shows from home using an audio app. And although it took a bit of getting used to, sometimes the connections are not great, producing from home has given me a chance to work on my editing skills and get over my apprehension about talking to people I can't see. So, thanks for that, 2020. For this week's show, I thought I would take my own journey back through the year and select some of the interviews I did with people who were not from Colombia. The first three I chose were actually before lockdown started and were the last chats done in the KOPN studio with my pal Mike Hagen doing the engineering. They feel so long ago. So for the next hour, travel back over the past 12 months with me to listen again to just a handful of people whose stories touched my life this year. Ready? Our first trip today is back to the last big event that happened in Colombia, the True False Film Fest. I talked to guitarist Yasmin Williams, who was one of the musicians who came to Colombia to busk for the fest and whose song, Restless Heart, subsequently became part of the show each week. 
There is a lovely quote on your website from your US congressman, Jerry Connolly, who says, if only we could supplant gun violence in America with the beauty of Yasmin's music. And there is something in your music that speaks to the beauty of humanity. When you're composing, what's in your head? What are you thinking about when you're composing? Usually nothing, (laughs) weirdly (laughs) enough. Um, Most of the time, I guess songs kind of create themselves and I'm more of like a vessel for them than actually thinking about something, which is weird to say. <laughs> kind of channeling. Yeah, that's kind of how I feel. <laughs> yeah. Your works are all instrumental and there's, yeah. there's no vocals, but do you imagine lyrics for your works? No, not at all. I am not a lyrical person, really, at all. Um, other people can, and I have collaborated with vocalists, rappers, singers um, on some songs, but um, me, no. So tell me about your guitar, because it's a Skytop guitar. Yeah. And it was custom made for you. And yes. there were mollusks and fungus uh, yes. that also so, were involved in it. Yeah, it was recently featured in an acoustic guitar magazine. So like the whole history of this is there. But yeah, Skytop guitars made it. Um, the front of it is Sitka Spruce with mollusk holes. They're natural. Um, the mollusk burrowed into the wood. It was, this is basically like driftwood that he somehow like repurposed into a guitar top. And I think it looked cool, so I asked for it. (laughs) (laughs) And the back is um, spalted tamarind, which is basically a lot of fungus. (laughs) Yeah, it's just like a supernatural, sustainable um, guitar. I like it. Did you grow up in a household of people that played music? We all listened to music. And yeah, both of my brothers are singers. And um, one of them is a really good piano player. My mom played clarinet. I played her clarinet in band. Fun fact. What made you choose guitar? Guitar was just, well, I started playing because I beat the video game Guitar Hero 2 (laughs) on Expert, and I just love guitar from that game. Like, you know, like, the controller has five buttons, and you gotta, like, tap them super fast, and yeah, I just love that, and just the sound of, like, rock guitar. So I wanted to play that at first. But that didn't really work. (laughs) I don't know, I got bored of standard tuning, and, like, I wasn't, I didn't, yeah, I wanted to be like a rock star, but that just wasn't the vibe, I guess, after a couple of years of playing. So I started playing acoustic. And at first I thought acoustic was only for singer-songwriters, you know, chords and stuff. Mm-hmm. But I quickly figured out that that's not the truth. You can do a ton <laughs> with it. So acoustic is my main instrument. And so where did this style, the finger-picking, lap-tapping style come from? What were your influences um, on that? Basically, it came from just a series of trial and error and just deficiencies I figured out I had (laughs) so I started playing electric guitar and I wanted to like tap kind of like the normal way I guess like with the guitar upright Um, but I'm very slow at that and I'm not good so I kind of flipped it around and put it in my lap and figured out I was a lot better at tapping that way so and it's also more natural for me actually playing this way than holding it up standard way I guess and then you also wear tap shoes when you're performing. Yeah. To keep the beat. Yes. When my hands are busy, I use my feet, basically. And then you have a cello bow. Yeah, I have a cello well. bow. And <laughs> I have like a little guitar hammer thing that I use occasionally in some songs. And yeah. You have a thing. What is it called? A ca- Oh, yeah. A kalimba. I have two kalimbas, kalimbas too. Okay. Yeah. I got that idea from um, Earth, Wind & Fire. Huh. Maurice White, he would play solos. And I always love those. So, yeah, I found one Guitar Center that had no price tag, and I snagged it (laughs) for like $30 or something. And, yeah, I've been loving Kalimbo's ever since. Yasmin Williams has a brand new album coming out on January the 29th called Urban Driftwood. And this is a sneak listen to one of the tracks called Juvenescence. (laughs) 
one of the most memorable and moving conversations for me this year was with filmmaker David France and his documentary subject, Maxime Lapunov. David directed a film called Welcome to Chechnya, which played at the True False Film Fest, which told the story of Max and many other LGBTQ citizens in Russia who were forced to flee their country because of threats to themselves and their families. Maxime's story was particularly gruelling, and he talked on the show about the day he was abducted. Max does not speak English, so the main voice you will hear is the film's cinematographer and translator, Igor Mayakotin. I asked Maxime to tell us about what happened the day he was abducted. And a warning, Maxime's story references torture. Здравствуйте всем. Hi everyone, my name is Maxim. I worked for two years in Chechnya. I wanted to start my own business there. I was an event planner. I came to work there for the all-Russian honey fair. And then I decided to stay and to develop my own business there. I started doing many wonderful, beautiful things with balloons. And I was just giving happiness to people, really. Yes, I was actually working outside uh, selling the balloons that I was making. And that was the day when I was kidnapped, I was taken. A lot of people saw that. Did you know where you were being taken or why you were being taken? No, it was an ordinary day and I had no idea whatsoever what was going to happen to me. Uh, A friend of mine was detained from the house that I used to live in. I was trying to look for him. I filed uh, uh, some sort of an official search uh, for this person. The only thing I was being told that probably his relatives took him and he did something bad. They got him into a car and he was screaming very loudly. I heard that. Everyone else heard that. And I was so scared. I called his relatives and we started looking for him. So and what happened to you when they took you? Uh, They released the person uh, and he came to me to tell me something. I was working that day selling the balloons. And he said, he came to me and said, I'll wait here for a little bit. I'm going to be right back. Um, But he never came. And in about two hours, uh, strangers came up to me. They were dressed as civilians. And one of them came to me and he said, hey, Max, haven't seen you in a while. How have you been? Grabbed me by my arm and started dragging me. I didn't even have time to process what was happening. And then the second one came, also grabbed me by my other arm. And they were dragging me really hard at that point. There was a, sh- a short fence, and they got me out uh, over the fence and put me into the car. There were two more people there. I started screaming, calling for help. I was very scared. And people who were there, they out in the streets, uh, they saw that, and they started screaming. Women started screaming and calling for help, tried to help me. I was working outside of a movie theater, so there were a lot of people there. And people that were actually trying to help me. They were trying to get get me out of the van. And then the guys who were dragging me in the car, they pulled out guns, and then everyone just stopped. They put me in the van, and they said, you're being accused of uh, murder. I asked them for their IDs, but they didn't show me anything. In Grozny, there are a lot of checkpoints, uh, and there are people there with guns. This is Kadyrov's people. And Ramzan Kadyrov is the leader of the Chechen government. And Grozny is the capital city, which is where you were abducted from. And then these people at a checkpoint, uh, they stopped us and they wrote everything down because they heard the screams in the van. Um, And then they had a conversation um, and 
we kept going. And they uh, got me to a police station. And I spent really horrible two weeks there. Mm. And you, they tortured you while you were there? Yes, they were beating me constantly. And uh, they were telling me really bad things right straight in my face. My whole body was covered in bruises. It was just blue. I was I was sleeping in a small cell and the whole floor was covered with blood. I was sleeping on a cardboard box. I, they took away my jacket, my sweater. I was just sleeping in um, pants and a t-shirt. And they were making fun of me every day. They were beating me violently and at some point they started hitting me with the palms of their hands so there would be no bruises on my body. Did they say they were going to kill you? Yes, they've been telling me that such people cannot live, that gays cannot live on this earth. And they told me that I came to Chechnya to seduce people. I was a pervert for them who was spoiling their people. And they would tell me straight in my face that they're going to kill me and I'm not going to get out of this cell alive. Why do you think they did let you go eventually? Uh, thank God my family and my boyfriend they started looking for me I told my family when my friend got missing from uh, the apartment building where I used to live I told my family if I if I go missing please raise the alarms and go look for me please one of the many memorable things about welcome to Chechnya is director David France's use of digital effects what is known as uncanny valley to alter people's faces I asked him to talk a little about that decision. What's going on in Chechnya is really a kind of a, an a ethnic cleansing from within. You know, it's this effort, a stated, formal, top-down, government-controlled effort to uh, eradicate uh, the LGBTQ community, to cleanse the blood of the Chechen people. That's the way it's described. This is really an official campaign And what everybody knows who has managed, as uh, Maxim has, to escape is that they that's not enough. That getting away is not enough. Leaving the country is not enough. Um, you will be pursued to the end of the earth. So um, the people who have began their journeys, as I was filming, knew that they could not uh, leave behind any record of their ongoing ex existence um, and that had limited in, in significant ways the way the news media had covered what was going on there and I asked if it wouldn't be possible for me to um, shoot them uh, and watch them and follow them with their faces exposed to me so that I could see what their journey was like for them so I could experience their emotional lives, I guess, at this horrendous time, and that I would find some way to disguise them. So I made them that promise. Um, I'm grateful that they um, agreed. And then uh, I had to, um, with Igor's help and the rest of my crew's help, had to find a way to do it that would actually allow us to find that, that humanity and tr track that humanity through the film without giving away anybody's identities. And um, so I tried what other documentary filmmakers have tried, and all of it seemed either false or dehumanizing. And what eventually we, we, we started working with was this new technology that would allow us to put someone else's face digitally over the faces of the people who we were shooting 
and we're not asking the the actor let's let's say to act we're just taking the elements of his or her face ingesting it into this algorithm and using that algorithm to map over the faces of the people who I was following in the film so the expressions are belong to the people I was shooting the eye movements the mouth movements the words that come out all of that belong to the person I shot but they're shielded with this digital um, skin. So what what it allowed me to do is to give back to people like Maxime in the film the power to tell their own story, to reinstate their humanity, for them to tell the truth, you know, for mm-hmm. the truth to come out. And in that way, it does take the deep fake AI work and turns it right on its head and makes it a powerful tool for revealing truths that otherwise would remain hidden out of fear and threat. The very last interview I did live in the studio before lockdown was with the funniest and most successful Tupperware lady in America, Dixie Longgate. Dixie was performing for Capital City Productions in Jefferson City and popped over to Columbia for a little chat and a fascinating history lesson on Tupperware, its founder Brownie Wise, and the importance on getting out there in life and making a difference. I love how you incorporate Brownie Wise into the show and, and, and she's very much there with you on the stage. Yeah. Was that always part of the Tupperware Party show? When I was doing Tupperware parties in people's living rooms, I didn't talk about her. But then I sort of found out more about her. I would go to the Jubilee, the big Tupperware convention. Oh, it's like the Academy Awards of Plastic. It was amazing. It's all these people shoved into a convention center for four days talking about bowls. Come on, who wouldn't want to be at that? <laughs> and so um, it's it's really, really fun. And then uh, I started hearing more about Brownie Wise. And I was like, who's this woman? Who's this woman? People said, oh, she created the Tupperware party. But I had never heard of her. And I'm like, how, do, how is something this big and you don't know who the person is who really created it? And so I started doing research and I found out about her and she was this single mother um, from Michigan. And then she, like you said, she was, she had somebody given her a set of plastic bowls and she said, these are great, but this seal is different. And you know, but this is back in the day when it was glass bowls, like nobody had a plastic bowl. It was a brand new concept and nobody had a, a, a seal that would seal it on and keep things fresh. That was so revolutionary. So she said, you, you can't leave this on a store shelf. You have to demonstrate this. This is amazing. You So she took it off the shelf and she took it into people's living rooms and she was like look at this bowl look how great this is because she had been a polar brush salesperson a door-to-door person and so she already knew the idea of going to people and saying look at this thing that i have to show you and so she just took it into people's living rooms where they would be in their homes where they would be using it and and then she was selling so much and she was like getting it from the store and selling it to other people and she created her own little like little enterprise right there and then Earl Tupper found out about it and he's like how are you selling so much and she showed him what she was doing and he said I'm gonna you know what I'm gonna do I'm gonna pull it off of every store shelf I'm going to make the decision to hire you, make you vice president of Tupperware Home Party that created that home party division. So you you are the vice president of Tupperware Home Party Sales. I want you to basically get an army of women and deposit them all over the country and start to grow sales forces to get this product out to people. And from that, she did it so successfully. Every other direct selling company has patterned off of the Tupperware party, everybody else. So they did. Somebody did a deep dive. A sociologist did a deep dive and realized that because of her, she is the single biggest job creator in history. More people have done more work because of her party plan than any other job creator. 
in the world, which and the fact that nobody knows her name is what's staggering to me. So I said, you know, I just want to tell her story and do a little love letter to her every night on stage. But in telling her story, it also tells that it, it champions everybody else in the audience, hopefully. And they're like, you know what? The thing I can do something to cause a little ripple to to do something bigger and to, you know, show that I'm unstoppable. And so that's what I like. I sort of engage the audience and give them their own brownie wise moment to, to rise up. Sometimes that's my whole point of my show is I want to remind people that they matter to go out in the world and, and stand a little bit taller and um, and know your value. Because I think so often in these this day and age, people are they don't know their value. They are just so trained by society that you only matter as much as we allow you to matter. No, no. Why does somebody get to make the decision about you or your value? That's that's up to you to do that and um, so that's always my storytelling I have another show a second show that I developed uh, called Never Wear a Tube Top While Riding a Mechanical Bowl and 16 Other Things I Learned While I Was Drinking Last Thursday and um, that's like a continuing adventure of me but that's also a thing about um what adventures did you want to have when you were a kid that you stopped yourself from having that you said, oh, I don't want to. Do, I shouldn't do that. I should step in line like everybody else. I should be like everybody else. And I think all the people we look at, up to as adults these days, all the people that we emulate, that we go, these are my heroes. Those are all the people who didn't take no for an answer, who didn't stop moving forward, who said, I'm not going to step in line. Why do I want to be like everybody else? And they live in this world that's better than the world that everybody else lives in. And they're leading that path. And we all look to them and go, why can't I be like that? Well, you can. You just have to make the decision to be like that. That has to be your decision. And you just have to change your focus and, and do it. And so it's not easy. But is it easy being something that you never really wanted to be? Is it easy settling for things that you're not happy with? I mean, it takes the, the effort put in. Is literally the same amount of effort, but you can, you know, it. You know, they the old saying: it takes it takes fewer muscles in your face to frown than it, or to smile than it does to frown. So why do we spend so much effort frowning? It's too much exercise, you know. So it's just like do that. They like if you're gonna spend the time, if you're gonna get up in the morning, if you're, once your feet hit the ground. Focus yourself on something that's that's that betters yourself. Focus yourself on something that's even that you can do that's gonna that it's gonna lift the world up a little bit. And talking of lifting the world up a little bit back in early june a beautiful all wind instrument rendition of lift every voice and sing ambled into my facebook feed and it set off a triplet of interviews each of which has made it into this week's show performed by leading classical black musicians this arrangement by fred onoverisworki was produced by titus underwood the principal oboist of the nashville symphony orchestra and features my next guest today, Mizzou assistant teaching professor and French horn player, Amanda Collins.
And here's Amanda Collins. Tell me about the arrangement we just heard and how the performance came about. So back when the pandemic first started, a lot of musicians and orchestras were sort of put on hold, so to speak. And it became a really convenient time to get together and work on some projects that maybe we've been putting on the back burner because life takes over and there's not a lot of time. And so I got a phone call or a text message from a friend of mine named Titus Underwood, who produced the recording you just heard earlier. And he asked me if I would be interested in getting together with some other black musicians that we know from our network, so to speak. There's a whole network of diversity programs, especially for black musicians. And we all have contacts and friends. And he asked if we wanted to get together just to chat about a a project. So I said, of course, you know, why not? I'm not doing anything else. And of course, I would love to talk about this. So we got together and he brought in um, musicians from all over the country. And we just talked about what was going on in our country with the pandemic. And this is an excellent opportunity to work together on meaningful projects. And so uh, originally we had set out to record a portion of the Strauss Serenade for Winds. And it was mentioned in this meeting that perhaps we should do something that, that features, you know, a strong Black composer, Black music. And someone said, why don't we do Lift Every Voice and Sing? And so we brought in a composer, Fredo, from Fredo Music. And he did this beautiful arrangement for the instrumentation for the Strauss Serenade, uh, which is pretty unique. And this piece was born. And originally it was just the anthem uh, that everybody knows. But then it took this turn in the middle of of minor keys and modulations and just disruption and chaos. And then it comes back again at the end with the main theme. It was just so powerful. And so we decided because of the pandemic, when you do these projects, you know, the idea is this, we have time, right? Because there's, we're all sitting around and with nothing else to do. And so we decided it was right around the time that George Floyd was murdered. And we thought about it and we said, well, we could put this stress serenade out or... (laughs) We could take this opportunity to align ourselves and show our unity with our Black brothers and sisters who are working to for equity for the Black community through the Black Lives Matters movement. And so it just was born from the events happening, the timing. It just it it's spooky how it all really lined up perfectly. It's just, but it worked and it was profound. I've found a beautiful quote from Fredo that I just think is is so fabulous because it doesn't only speak to musicians, it speaks to us all listening to more classical music and, and thereby supporting musicians. He said, if every concert hall in America could allow a wide variety of repertoire to come in, could allow a different palette of music to be heard with influences from the East and the Middle East, from Africa, the Caribbean and Latin America... Influences from the wealth of experiences shared by diverse immigrant populations to America. That would be classical music reimagined. Audience sizes will increase, not decrease, as the recent trend seems to indicate. And that is a beautiful idea. I agree. Let's make it happen. I I second that. (laughs) (laughs) And it is with profound thanks to Amanda Collins that I met the incomparable, the world-renowned, sultry-toned, most illustrious Nigerian Ghanaian American composer ever, and a guest on the show who has subsequently become a dear friend, Fred 
on Novellus Walkie, otherwise known simply as Freddo. Well, you are truly a global citizen, a bit like me. Your parents are from Ghana. You were brought up in both Ghana and Nigeria, but you've made America your home for the last 30 years. And you describe yourself as an immigrant composer. Now, I too am an immigrant, but I still think of myself more as a foreigner or as a European. (laughs) (laughs) Why do you choose to identify as an immigrant over an African or a Ghanaian Nigerian composer? Well, you hear it from my accent. It's a suckle immigrant, so I choose what I sound like and what I look like and what I write like. An immigrant composer. (laughs) (laughs) But you're also an African composer. I'm an African composer in a pan-African sense, in... in, uh, Meaning I've traveled across the continent. I've imbibed a lot of different mannerisms and I'm able to write in different things I've seen in different parts of the beautiful, beautiful continent. Now, your your compositions are played by orchestras all over the world, and you have traveled extensively to research what you call traceable musical Africanisms. So tell me about some of the far-flung places you have found traceable musical Africanisms and what exactly you're looking for. A traceable Africanism is jazz, it's calypso, it's salsa, it's merengue, it's reggaeton, you know, so I mean, I can go on and on and on. In other words, art forms, cultural styles that were brought to the new world by the early African slaves, you know, to the Americas, not just the United States, but all of the Americas, you know. So these have become combined with other European and indigenous style to create new forms. So um, those are what I call... Africanisms. Uh, there could be some in some areas like in Brazil, in some areas like in Cuba, in Santeria. They could be very, very purist in nature, but in some areas, uh, they could be mutated as in jazz, as in gospel, as in rock time. So all of it is Africanism. I have loved just hanging out on your website and listening to your music because oh. it, it is very enticing and I'd love to hear a big orchestra play it. But in, in reading about and listening to your work, I heard at least part of your triptych of American voices, a cantata for the people. And I'd love to have you talk a little bit about it. So before we listen to a piece, let's start with a little about the backdrop of what was happening culturally, socially, politically at the time you wrote the work and what you wanted audiences to understand. I was commissioned by Koro, as you well know, and the the directives were pretty straightforward. Fredo, everybody's very concerned what's going on, you know, in this country, you know, following the 2016 election, you know. And uh, Maestro David Hodgkins gave me Maya Angelou's poem, uh, Why the the Caged Bird Sings. And then um, one of the singers at Coro gave him to give me um, Langston Hughes' poem, as I grew older, and then they asked me, "Well, you know, you 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 get to choose one more poem." And I chose uh, 
Michael Castro's We Need to Talk. So those three poems were my guiding post, if you will, uh, to express concern following the 2016 election and where we've gotten ourselves as at that time. The cage bird is a metaphor for, you know, uh, people who, a population, a populace that's uh, imprisoning in itself, yearning to be out like other birds, other free birds and smell the roses, you know. So, uh, uh, so th- is the basis why the cage bird sings is the basis for the first movement. And then the second movement was inspired by Langston Hughes' poem, As I Grew Older. And it talks about, in it, um, it talks about walls that prevents the narrator from his or her dreams, you know. And then the third movement by the glorious poem by Michael Castro, who is St. Louis's first uh, poet laureate, actually. And he wrote, uh, he wrote, we need to talk right after the Ferguson riots in St. Louis here, you know. We need to talk is just about getting past the disconnect that ruined our society and just really talking to one another, appreciating one another. So those those, those are the things that uh, the beacon, the, the guiding post, if you will, that I had to write the triptych. Well, let's listen to the closing passage from part one of the Triptych of American Voices, performed by the Coro Allegro Orchestra of Boston with counter Tai One, tenor Jonas Burdis, and conducted by David Hodgkins.
part one of Fredo's Triptych of American Voices, a cantata for the people, performed by the Coro Allegro Orchestra and Choir of Boston, conducted by David Hodgkins. And as one thing leads to another, it was through Fredo that I got introduced to the incredible Marlon Daniel, a leading black conductor and world expert on the music of Chevalier de Saint-Georges. Tell me where it started for you. Well, it started with me when I was very young. My biological father is actually a musician, and I would be able to see him on the weekends, weekend kind of dad. And But uh, basically, when I used to see him, he used to always be practicing, and uh, mostly he's a percussionist. But he had, at the time, when I was young, he was finishing up a degree at the American Conservatory of Music, so he had a piano requirement. So he's really very low-level pianist. But I used to always watch him because it was supposed to be some kind of quality time. And uh, he used that for practicing. That shows you, well, yeah, um, the level of his interest at that time. He needed to get this degree done. But I used to watch him. But I, I was confused because he would keep repeating things over and over again. And after watching him for some weeks, I actually said, you know, went to the piano and started to play his pieces. Because I had been watching. I said, I figured this out. I said, I fixed it. And now can we go and have pizza? <laughs> <laughs> and that was one of, the, one of the earliest things I remember, because I thought that that's what we were supposed to be doing, going to have pizza. But, you know, he's practicing. And I thought that there was something that why he kept doing it over, because he couldn't get it right. And so I wanted to help him. And after that, that was the day I became, uh, you know, the most interesting person to him ever. and start to get lessons and things like that. It was like, you know, your I guess your talent was revealed and now the stage parent has come out. <laughs> so your first talent was as a pianist and you caught the attention of some powerful mentors before you were really even in high school. Tell me how you met the mayor of Chicago, Harold Washington, and then the founder of the Chicago Sinfonietta, Paul Freeman. Well, that was very interesting. Mayor, um, I was performing a lot when I was even early high school and before. And I was on a show called Challenge of the Mind with Brian Gumbel, I believe it was. And he was a very well-known, I think he's still alive, uh, well-known commentator on television, on the news, but he hosted a program because they had the NAACP AXO competition. And, uh, and it was for basically all the arts, sciences, and things like that. And they did this documentary was called Challenge of the Mind, and I was one of the people who was performing. They followed me, and I was playing List, and, I, and also they used it for the soundtrack. You know, the opening was me, the middle was me, the end was me, and so I got the attention of the mayor. He took me under his wing, and he was very supportive, because my family doesn't have a lot of money, but he, at least he, you know, there's a big interest, and I would play at some events for the mayor, and that's how I got, like, a key, a key to the city. When he was giving them out, he gave me one, too. And so basically, it was really great. When he passed away, I cried. Mm -hmm. I literally cried because he was really had taken such a great interest in what I was doing. Yeah. And also through him, you met Paul Freeman, who must have been a, a huge mentor for you. Actually, I didn't meet Paul Freeman that way. I met Paul Freeman because Paul Freeman lived in the same building as my father. <laughs> Yeah, he lived in the same building as my father. My father moved to, at one point in time, to the downtown River Bank. It's uh, one of those buildings that you always see on the thing. But my father moved there 
But Paul Freeman lived in the same building. And um, one day down the elevator, Paul Freeman gets on. And my father, in his fit of pride, says, this is my son. You know, he's a pianist. He's going to play for you. And, and that's how I first met him. I never got to play for Paul Freeman. And later on, later, when I lived in Prague, Paul Freeman was the um, conductor for the Prague Symphony Orchestra. When I went to Prague and I studied at the Prague Academy, he was there. And I pulled the biggest remember me of all time sake. <laughs> <laughs> I had just done my, my debut in Prague and, I, and he did a concert. I went to go see him at backstage and I said, hey, Maestro Freeman, it's me, Marlon Daniel. Remember me? I knew that when he's like, I remember you. <laughs> so you, you're basically saying to Paul Freeman, I was the little kid you met in an elevator with my dad. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, that brings us to the incredible Joseph Boulogne Chevalier de Saint-Georges, such a great name, who was born on the Caribbean island of Guadeloupe in 1745, the son of an incredibly beautiful black plantation worker and, oh, quelle surprise, the white and married plantation owner. But his life has to be one of the most fascinating in the classical world. So give us a potted history of the amazing Saint-Georges. Well, that was that was a turning point in my life as far as music of composers of color. I could first of all, I disbelieved it. <laughs> a friend of mine, yes, I thought it was somebody was well, just pulling my leg. A friend of mine who happened to be from Guadeloupe. I met a friend from Guadeloupe through another friend. I didn't even know where Guadeloupe was, to be <laughs> honest with you. And he says, and we're known for this and that. And, you know, you're talking and we have a composer, Joseph Ballon, Chevalier de Saint-Georges, who influenced Mozart. And I'm like, really? Why haven't I ever heard of this? And, you know, I'm, and it's not like I'm going to doubt another person of color, you know, on an issue of color. But I'm like thinking I've been through like almost four years of music school and music history. And I am, you know, I've ravaged the libraries and I have never heard of this guy. And so I began to, and I found out that, of course, he wasn't lying, you know, and so, one of my best friends, by the way. And not only was he not lying, but he's, he only knew half of the story. And, and then I began to go on this plight and said, oh, my God. And I found out about his history. And this guy was a superman. I could not believe this. For me, it was the answer to all my questions, like what I've been seeking all my life, the validation that what I'm doing is somehow real. And it blew my mind. I mean, the things that I found out, and it was very little information. I began to gather more and more information on Chevalier de Saint-Georges, which eventually led to Festival International Music Saint-Georges, or the Saint-Georges International Music Festival. It led to that. Well, of course, we have to listen to some of Chevalier de Saint-Georges' fabulous music. And as you have a fondness for his Symphony Number no. 2 in D major, here is a live performance of you conducting at the Dimena Centre for Classical Music in New York City as the orchestra plays Saint-Georges' Opus 2, Number no. 2. Thank you. 
Yvonne is also the director for the St. Georges International Music Festival on the Caribbean island of Guadeloupe, to which, at some point, we will be taking a trip. Another trip which I am looking forward to retaking is to visit my pal Coriot in Berlin. Cory is a graduate of Stevens College and has been working as a comedian all over Europe for the best part of 30 years. She was on my One World Same Boat podcast back in the spring and I caught up with her again in October to see how life as a dinner theatre comedian was panning out six months after the global demise of live theatre. It is a strange time to be in the business of live performances. How uh, is your calendar of engagements looking these days? Pretty empty. Got a bit of that sort of like, you know, Death Valley look to it. <laughs> you know, but all the plans, all the things we were looking forward to, the weddings in Tyrol and Austria, you know, a bit of the sound of music feel to it, cancelled another, you know, one show here, one show there. And yeah, I mean, as of February, I had seven engagements cancelled and it's been slow going since then. I mean, comedy wise, it's been basically nothing. They've opened some theaters as of the 1st of September, but these are also ones then where you have like a piano player on stage with a singer with a plastic shield in front and that's it. Because, you know, dancers, singers, musicals, you know, I do comedy animation at at the tables where you're really close to the people. These type of things are absolutely impossible at the moment. I've been performing for the last 23 years for, it was started out being called Pump Duck and Circumstance. It was, um, they serve duck for dinner. So it's a <laughs> four and a half hour show and it's with a, a Michelin star cook. So they have a three, three to four course dinner, depending on what they order. And this very famous cook either a German, famous German cook or a famous British cook or a Dutch cook, depending on where the show is happening. They um, put their name and their food and they offer it to Palazzo or Pump Deck and Circumstance. And then we perform. I write the shows. I'm like the comedy moderator. We do like, and it's in the people. It's in this beautiful 1920s mirrored tent that they make in Belgium that are absolutely beautiful. It looks like the boudoir of a madame from an old fashioned <laughs> cat house somewhere. But it is absolutely magical when you walk in. And they have shows like that as well in the States. Teatro Zanzani, there's one in San Francisco, one in Seattle, I think one in Chicago. And that's like a copy of what I've been doing, like the mothership (laughs) that started like in 1993. And that's what I've been doing ever since. You know, and this type of thing is, you know, I play a character, different crazy characters, and the people come in, sit down, 450 people a night. And um, yeah, I introduce them. I'm like the madam of the evening, and I like lead them throughout the night. And in that, they have artists like trapeze artists or hand-to-hand artists or contortionists or you name it, anything Cirque du Soleil that can bend and put their legs over their heads. (laughs) They're the ones that are hired and they have me stay on the ground and talk about it. So... (laughs) So that is over. I mean, how does that come back? Who knows? I mean, honestly, who knows? I mean, you've got these hot, sweaty Russian bodies swinging (laughs) over your head while you're eating a meal. I don't even imagine like even it gives me the heaves at the moment. (laughs) 
So you are an American performing comedy in Germany. Do you perform American-style jokes in German or do you perform German comedy in English? <laughs> well, I mean, first of all, we have to break the stigma that Germans don't understand comedy and don't have any humor. <laughs> so this is what, first of all, I always like to say the only reason I'm successful here is because the bar is set super low and they drink a lot. They do. A lot of alcohol involved. You know, I look like Claudia Schiffer after three or three beers. And I'm incredibly funny after that as well. So, <laughs> But no, the Germans are a great audience. They themselves are not particularly funny, but they do love this sense of humor. And me, I write everything in English. And then I work with a guy together. And he helps me then translate the jokes into German, because a lot of it is lost in translation, like some things just do not translate. And so I'll say to him, okay, but this is what I meant. And he'll be like, Oh, okay. And then of course, it'll be like 14 syllables more than the other <laughs> one. And the joke dies. And I go, all right, forget it. Let's do a different one. But uh, yeah, it's it's a process for sure. But I perform in German with an incredibly bad American accent. And the Germans find it adorable for some bizarre <laughs> reason. God love them. And that is it for another week. Thanks for indulging me on a trip down memory lane. There isn't a conversation I've had this year where I haven't learned something from my guest. I hope you have enjoyed them too. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm or you can connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thanks as always to guitarist Yasmin Williams for allowing me to play her song, Restless Heart, at the beginning and end of the show. You can find more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. Happy New Year, and until next week, stay arty and masked up, Columbia. <laughs> <laughs>